From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Any person helping another to achieve a peaceful end of life is doing a wonderful thing. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and audio oddities we find all over the world. This week, we take a look at the hospice movement. Hospice works on a team approach. Doctors, nurses, and volunteers helping people live comfortably and often at home among family at the end of their lives. Over the course of eight months, Long Haul Productions, Dan Collison and Elizabeth Meister, followed two hospice volunteers through their training and first assignments in patients' homes. Trained to provide respite care, the volunteers try and give family members a break from their caretaking responsibilities. But the volunteer-patient relationships, like most human interactions, are fraught with pitfalls. Strangers become intimates at a very intense time, and things aren't always what you'd expect. Volunteers aren't always 100% altruistic, and patients aren't always 100% grateful. And that's what makes our story today so rich, complex, and surprising. Here's Hospice Chronicles. Um, My name is Karen Elkma, and I've been with Hospice for about two years now. I always like to start, if we could go around and have each of you introduce yourselves and just share maybe what brought you here or where your interest in hospice comes from. My name is Joe Hasse. I'm a retired teacher, and I'm almost 65 years old, and I'm going to certainly be facing my death within the next 20 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Betty Alsaz. I was a recreation director for uh, skilled care and retirement settlements and stuff like that. My husband was a minister, so I was very involved within his work. Tonight there are going to be two speakers. The first one is going to be talking about the importance of having boundaries with your patients, even from a volunteer standpoint. On initial visit, Frank carries his prayer book into a patient's home and places it on the bedside table. You say no. Why no? Because I feel on the initial visit, you have to find out where they're at, not where you're at. Mm-hmm. Okay. And would you maybe have a conversation with them about that, whether they were interested in prayer or... or I don't think something? the initial visit I would. No, no. But at some point... At some if, point, you know, if, if it comes up in the conversation. Anybody else on that? I don't see anything wrong with it myself. Okay. Because okay. if that person did want to have something read or prayer mm-hmm. it would be there and if not then I mean what would it hurt you know if, it's he, there. What, if they didn't want it then that's fine I wouldn't push it but if they want if they it then it's there. from a different faith? Well, whatever. I think I agree with Betty I definitely wouldn't even bring up the topic of my spiritual belief unless I were asked specifically I wouldn't even think of bringing it up I'm Carmen Bilchin, volunteer coordinator for Hospice at Home. This volunteer goes into a patient's home and they follow the wishes of the patient and the family. They don't come with their own agenda. They don't bring their beliefs system into that home. Most of my service has been in in respite, giving the frontline family caregivers a break. Roy Thompson and Judy Lampart were brought in to give the new volunteers a sense of what it is to be a hospice volunteer. It's tough when you have a wife who's got Alzheimer's and he's so loyal. He sits right by her side. Day in and day out. Right. That's what I'm impressed too with 
the couples that are out there and how well they are keeping their marriage vows. It is astounding. They take on sickness and in health and for better or for worse very seriously. Patients mm-hmm. may be able to tell their volunteer things that they can't tell their families, that they, they don't want to tell their families. So we need someone who can just be that ear, that person that the patient feels they can open up to. And this particular gentleman told me things that I'm absolutely <coughs> certain that his wife did not know. And it was like a confession. We look for someone who is comfortable with someone who is ill and who is probably close to dying. And I'm thinking of one fellow, too. His main companion and caregiver was little Samantha, his little dog. And Samantha was in sore need of a good bath and a trim. So I took her, and it was wonderful, because when I brought her in the door with her little, she had a little bandana on, she was as cute as a button. He just absolutely lit up. Absolutely. This is another thing. You might find, You might be the one that finds them. I, I, only in one instance in the last two and a half years, you know, walked in with someone who was alone by herself, and um, it was 24 hours or so before she died, I found her on the floor. So lots of things can happen, not to scare you, but just to, just to know that you can be in lots of different situations. Anybody nervous about going out there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's okay. I still am nervous. Oh, was he going to like me, or were they going to like me? You know, What are they like? You ask all these questions in your head. Mainly, will I say the wrong thing? I'm a little bit um, skeptical about whether or not I can handle it. Um, and I think I could easily get out of my element if I wasn't very careful and patient and slow moving and be careful about how things go. I don't have anxiety maybe because I've been there as far as being my husband's caregiver and I know how the last days are and it could be a joyous time. I think it's a journey that you take hand in hand and um, he and I were together to the very last minute. I accompanied him to the very end of his road and I don't think there's anything in this world like it. It's the one who won't be taken. We have a little ceremony. Um, we go up to the sanctuary and we light the hospice candle and we sing the rose because it's symbolic of our particular hospice. We give them their certificates and we give them their name tags and let them know they're ready to get out there. You've been together for seven weeks. You've learned a lot. You probably learned that there's so much more for you to learn, but that's okay. You'll go out and you'll experience, and that's the important thing now. I'm Joe Hasse, and we're ready to go in and meet Preston and Betty Bennett for the first time. We're here at their home in Niles. One o'clock in the afternoon on a rainy day. And I think Betty's going to go into town and do some shopping. And we'll hang out with her husband, Preston, who's having some problems. And we'll see how we can help out a little bit. Hi, Betty. Hi. How are you? Good. This is my first assignment. We went through our volunteer training. I guess it was six weeks or so ago now. So I'm ready for it. All you have to do is see how you can help out. 
This is my husband, Preston. He won't talk to you very much. Okay. Maybe not at all. I don't know. Okay. Hi, Preston. I'm Joe. He's Joe. You got a brother by the name of Joe, right? I didn't know if I did. It's okay, sweetie. He's had the Parkinson's 28 years plus. And then he's, the dementia is what is the big, big problem right now. So will, will he pretty much just sit there in the chair? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, he just sits there in the chair. So I'm going to stay here with you, Preston, and Betty's going to go into town and do some errands. I don't know. Well, I'll get back as soon as I can. Uh, I'm really not in any rush at all, so don't uh, worry about it a bit. Well, I appreciate it. I mean, um, it's just things that comes up that I can't deal with him, you know. Yeah. And um, I can't leave him here, and I can't take him with me very easily. Yeah. Because I took him out the other day, I had to go to the post office and to the bank, and I stopped by the drugstore, just run in and run right back out almost, and he locked the car door on me. I couldn't get the car door open. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't get it to make him understand to open the door. So I happened to think I had another set of keys in my pocket, so I got back in with that. <laughs> so, so he, you know, he does things that he don't realize he's doing it. No. He don't realize it. So it's been a rough, rough years. At the last couple of years, it's been almost torture. You be good, hon. You be good. Respite okay. care means giving the caregiver, Betty in this case, a chance to get out of the house and get some rest or go to lunch or do errands that she needs to do. The gentleman here is going to stay with you so I can run and take care of a few things, okay? Okay. I hear you that you were a, a veteran of the Korean War. You remember that? You remember being in Korea? Being a soldier in Korea? That was a while back. There wasn't any interaction with Preston particularly. Should I read something to you? I read to him a little bit out of a book that Betty had. It's called The Purpose Driven Life. You are not an accident. I am your creator. You were in my care even before you were born, says the Lord. I'm a Buddhist, and my spiritual background encourages me to investigate death and consider my own death, consider the preciousness of human life. To make the best use of your life, you must never forget two truths. First, compared to eternity, life is brief. Do you want, do you want to sleep, Preston, or do you want me to keep reading? He, he wasn't even aware of what was going on. And I turned the TV on for him, but he didn't seem to be particularly even watching that. So I read my own book to myself for a little while, and, and then Betty came home. Well, it was helpful because I had some things I had to take care of. I got some groceries and browsed around, didn't buy anything, but this took a little time for me, I guess. I have no idea how Betty manages because I'm bigger than she is and she gets him dressed and puts him to bed and puts his pajamas on and everything. Christmas Eve night was just about more than I could handle because he was asleep and he was wet and 
I didn't know how I was going to get him dressed. But I got it done, but I paid for it the next day. Because I was so sore from, you know, pulling on him, lifting on him. And, but I finally got him some dry clothes on. So I felt like I'd done okay. I felt like I had contributed. I felt good about it. But I look at it as helping Betty. Here's your company. Her name is Betty. She's coming to talk to you, get to know you, okay? She's a volunteer for hospice. My name is Betty Alsace, and um, I kind of made up my mind shortly after my husband died that um, I would want to be part of the hospice program. I'm very glad to meet you. Well, I'm glad to meet you, too. My husband did not choose hospice, but I noticed that the last two months of his life were kind of lonely because people kind of stayed away. I understand you like the price is right. What is it? It's on right oh. now. Oh. The woman I've been assigned to is a 97-year-old woman, very, very hard of hearing, so we may be shouting a little bit through this. Would you mind if I come and see you once in a while? The price is right, you say. No, that's okay. Yes, the price is right, isn't it? I'm excited at my first assignment because it's in a foster care home. For 30 years, I've worked in nursing home, retirement home, assisted living homes. I was a recreation director. You know, I'm a minister's wife, and I've met a lot of people over our life, and we've served a lot of people. And the most intriguing part for both my husband and I is to take off the layers of a person and find out, you know, who and what they are inside, what their hopes and dreams are. And I think it's important for all of us to do that for one another because then we can understand better where they're coming from. I understand you were born in Buchanan. I used to live in Buchanan. At 97 years old, she had a bout with skin cancer, and hospice was called in because she was deteriorating. It was in September that they were called in. My name's Julie Vineyard, and I'm the owner and operator of Vineyard's Adult Family Care in Colleen, caring for the elderly. Mamie came to me, oh, about three years ago, and she more or less has just, it's called losing the will to thrive type thing, where she just, her body is just kind of shutting down, and I suggested to the family that we call hospice in and let them do an evaluation, and so they're maintaining her, helping her to keep comfortable. We allow Mamie to do what she wants when she wants. She eats when she wants to. She has, you know, loving people around her, and that's where she's at at this point in her life. You know what? It's a lot warmer in here than outside. I bet it is, too. Well, they kind of tell you, yep. you know, things to talk about. You can talk about their life, things in general. Like today, we might say something about the snow and hook in on the fact that this is December 1st. Did you used to walk to the store in the snow? I used to. Mm-hmm. But I don't now, of course. No. Before I left the house, I was sitting and thinking about her. And I was trying to think of all the changes she saw in the world in this 97 years. It's got to be awesome. My dad worked at Clark's. I love the part where she was talking about her father worked in the foundry in, at Clark. I'll bet that was hot in the summer. 
He didn't wear no shirt. And he didn't wear a shirt. And he was a hairy man. And he had so much hair on his chest. I was glad I was. Didn't take after him that much. She was glad she didn't take after him. Is your sister still alive? Yes. I can't see her like I want to. Yeah. That's hard, isn't it? Yes. Because we need each other more than when we did when we was young. I'm really concerned about her wanting to see her sister. I know it's not probable that we'll be able to bring her to see her sister, but if we can exchange pictures that they can see each other, um, that may be uh, well for her. Henry is gone. He died and left me alone. Henry was your one love. He was my husband. Yes. I didn't want no other man. Well, anyway. We like to stay about an hour, if that's at all possible. But you also have to read. we got to keep in mind why we're here, and these people are terminal, and we have to respect that and pick up on their needs. Uh, thank you for stopping and visiting. Oh, you're quite welcome. And when she said thank you for coming, I knew it was time for us to leave. It was okay. nice meeting you. It's always nice nice you meeting you, too. And you take care. I will. I'll try. Okay. That's the best we can do. That's right. I thought it was uplifting mm-hmm. for me. I got a lot of fulfillment out of going. I can't think of a better way to spend my morning. It's kind of an honor to be brought into somebody's life like that, to be able to stand on on this threshold and really look at this person and really just know that they cried, they laughed, they played, they worked. It's who and what they are, and, and look at them now, and especially with people in nursing homes. Nine out of ten times, they sit there and watch the door just waiting for someone to come in. And if no one else can be that someone, I'm honored to be the one. I'll come back and see you next week. Okay. Okay? Okay. Hi, Preston. You remember me? I'm Joe. Today I was going to come and stay with Preston while Betty went to the dentist. When I talked to her this morning, she said that she had hurt her arm trying to maneuver him, so she had to cancel her dentist's appointment today. So I'm going to just stay here for a short time while she goes to the post office. Do you remember seeing him? It's been about two weeks. You remember seeing him? Not very often. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, not very often. Okay, let's finish eating your oatmeal, Okay. I'm wore out. I'm literally wore out. I just need a little bit of space to get some personal things done that I have been neglecting. She has made arrangements to um, have Preston put into respite care for five days. I said, well, Betty, that's a good idea. I think you made the right decision there. I think she's having a little bit of guilt about taking him out of the home. I'm breaking and I, I know I need to take care of myself, too. I mean, as well as take care of him. How come you haven't called me? Well, I just kept thinking every day it would get better. I hate to bother people. 
because I know they've got their own lives to live. It's just hard for me to ask for help because I've always done it myself. (laughs) But I'm learning. I think I need to call Betty a couple of times a week because she hasn't called me yet. I think I'll call her every few days, even while he's over at respite. So I I think I need to participate a little bit more. Well, I'm going to go run an errand, and I'll be back in a little bit, okay? Okay? Joe's going to stay with you till I get back. I won't be very long. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. I don't know why she wants Preston here in the house myself. I mean, she can't manage with him herself, and she's distressed about the whole situation and she's really tired and seems to me like she'd be better off having him in a nursing home and she could go visit him every day you know but uh, you know there must be there might be some reasons I made a promise until I just can't go no longer that's the way it'll be till whatever whatever however much time he's got because uh, I made that promise and I just can't break it unless it gets to, I just don't have a choice. I called her twice since I visited over there last time, and she didn't particularly need anything. And uh, Preston Bennett is back from his five-day stay and uh, seems to be doing about the same. Good afternoon, Mamie. This is Betty, and I'm here to see Mamie again. And I've seen her probably about five, six times now. And you could see a slight deterioration each week when you go there. Um, She's still very difficult to communicate with, but now she seems more tired and listless. A lot of times when she's talking, she'll have her eyes closed now. And she kind of gives you the hint that it's time to go, maybe a little earlier than she did before. You could still see the spirit trying to come out, but uh, you can really see her going downhill. How are you today, Mamie? Uh, I'm tired. You're very tired? Yeah. I haven't seen her up in the last three weeks. She's been in bed. You sleepy today? Hmm. You wanted to get a snooze in. <laughs> little by little, little things, the sparkle in her eyes aren't there. Her little laugh that she'll laugh at something like normally she'd say if she wanted a snooze, she'd say it with a little laugh. And now it, she's very tired. It's a dark day today, isn't it? I really hate to wake her up if she really needs the sleep. Having worked in an environment where we dealt with people in final stages, being on staff, you were brought more into, you know, what's happening with them. And so when you would go into their room or something, you'd be aware that they're deteriorating. Here we don't get that kind of information, and I know because of confidentiality it can't happen. So a lot of times we go in there cold and we don't know you know, just what's happening in their life. And we walk into it sometimes. So it kind of puts you a little bit more on edge and going in there and realizing don't come in with an agenda. It's difficult to see them go downhill like that because 
you know, before you were able to get some response out of them, and each week is less and less with her. Last Wednesday, I was getting prepared to have my visit with Mamie, and I was just getting dressed, and I got a call from our volunteer coordinator telling me that Mamie had passed away that morning. It hit me that I had wished I could see her before she passed away, but then, you know, she went her way, and I think at 97 years old, I think, you know, she was hoping this would happen, that she'd be able to go and be with her beloved husband. She dearly loved him, and she kept on looking up at the shelf where his picture was. I read the death notice, and I was thinking about her life and all the people that she touched. And I said a prayer that God would receive her and, you know, to look over her life and the beauty that she brought to it and honor her for that. You're listening to Hospice Chronicles from Long Haul Productions on ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxine. We would love to hear your thoughts on this or any ReSound you hear. All comments and questions welcome, whether praise or pans. Our address is ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. In the first segment of today's show, we followed two hospice volunteers, Betty Alsaz and Joe Hazy, through their training and first visits with patients. In the next segment, we listen in while Joe visits Roger, his next client. And this juxtaposition of two people in an intense situation who would never otherwise get to know each other or even interact leads the story into unexpected twists and turns. Good morning, good morning. I'm Joe. You must be Joe. This will be my first visit to um, the home of Roger Nidal. It's a respite visit. <laughs> We're looking for you. Are you Carol? <laughs> I'm, I'm Carol Williams. I'm the only child of Roger Nidai, who we have enrolled with hospice. And congestive heart failure is his diagnosis, and the doctor in the hospital said that his heart was only working at 10 to 20% and wouldn't last a whole lot longer, but who knows. Knock, knock. Brought you some visitors. My dad's age is 89 and my mother's is 85. Hi, Roger. I'm Joe Hasse. My mother is in quite good health, but she doesn't see very well. And so... Today we're going to the grocery store and doing a little shopping for uh, picture frames and a couple of things that she wanted extra in the house. Take us a couple of hours and we'll be back. Whenever you're ready, Mom, I will. Uh, are you ready? I'll get my coat ready. Yeah, you can come on up. <clears throat> my wife and my daughter are doing one of the things they like best, grocery shopping. <laughs> oh. I know that he has a master's degree in physics, and I have a master's degree in physics, so I'd like to talk to him about that. I've forgotten all I knew about physics. <laughs> What's that? I have, I have, my brain has, has been... My memory is, is shot. I can't remember anything anymore. Yeah, I, I don't remember any of my physics really much either. Really? Except uh, I understand you were a professor somewhere. I taught uh, I taught physics, but uh, I was drafted. You have a degree in physics and you've been a teacher. We're going to put you in this development 
that's the, what do they call it? It was the development of the atomic bomb. Manhattan Project? Manhattan Project, yeah. He does have a little confusion once in a while, but he's pretty sharp. Just a little loss of memory, but he's aware of his loss of memory, too. So when the bomb went off, was it a pretty exciting event? Oh, yeah. A lot of people say that was the worst thing that the United States ever did, was kill all those people. If we hadn't fired those the things that ended the war, the war would have gone along a lot farther. In fact, I probably felt like after Nagasaki, they'd come along with the next one. He talked <laughs> about wishing have, they uh, had they the dropped issue. another bomb on Japan, and I felt uncomfortable with that. And nobody else in the world could do that at the time. I think it must have been the Lord's work that uh, we did it. We've got God on our side? Yeah, well, I put it that way if you want. <laughs> and then I mentioned having God on our side, you know, kind of in a snide way. And I hope I didn't offend him in any way because they're Seventh-day Adventists. And um, sometimes I'm not careful about stepping on toes that I don't really intend to step on. So do you do any reading? That's all I can do. Yeah. That's all I can do. What do you like to read? Bible. Oh. <laughs> I did mention to him at one point that I was a Buddhist. This is Blanco's Bible. You ought to get one of these. And so I, I'm a little nervous that he might get uncomfortable. But I don't. I wasn't uncomfortable about him showing me the Bible. How do you feel about death? Oh, I'd invite it. I pray and talk to the Lord. Lord, you can have me any time. Please make it soon. <laughs> That's my attitude. As far as I'm concerned, I'd be happy to kick the bucket right now. Well, wait till your daughter gets back. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I had a certain definite reaction to that. My reaction was, Joe, what can you do to encourage Roger to have some kind of interest and feel like he has some useful purpose for the rest of his life that he does have? You know the Dalai Lama? I know who you're talking about, yeah. You know what I'm talking about, yeah. He says we should try to stick it out right till the last minute. Oh, well, that's that's a philosophy of a lot of people. Stick it out right yeah. till the last minute, yeah. but try to be peaceful. Yeah. Help yourselves to a chair or sit down or whatever you want to do. We're in the home of Roger Nidai. I was here maybe two weeks ago. I had something I want to ask you about. Yeah, okay. Um, Please do. Last time, Roger told me that he was ready to die, and he didn't know why God didn't come and take him. Yeah, I said that. I still have that. Still feel that way? Yeah. So I was thinking about that, and I said, well, I said, Joe, maybe you can think of a little project that Roger could work on, make him feel more like sticking around for a little while. So I thought of this idea. My idea is, I'm not really a tight Christian, and you are. Yeah, you're not a Seventh-day Adventist. I'm not even really a Christian. <clears throat> really, basically, I'm not. 
Well, that's, that's your choice. Yeah, we're lucky to have it. So I was thinking, <laughs> what if you could tell me about Jesus Christ, particularly about how he's influenced your life? And that way, Roger can have a little project to work on, come up with some lesson plans for me, and I can maybe get some connection with Jesus Christ that way. Well, I think the best way for you to find something like that out is not getting information from somebody else. It's from digging it out yourself. You do? Yeah. But the thing to do where you do the digging should be in the Bible. I was a little disappointed with his reaction because I was kind of wanting him to participate and talk to me about his life and about his feelings about Christianity and how it's affected his life. I didn't want him to just point me to the Bible and tell me to go look it up myself because I'm not really terribly interested in investigating Christianity at this time in my life, and I'm definitely not interested in studying it out of the Holy Bible. I don't even own one. Well, that's your problem, not mine. Can I have yours when you go? My Bible? Yeah. If you're not happy unless you have my Bible, forget it. And You're bright enough that you can get a Bible if you want it. I got a lot of other books I'm reading. <laughs> Help yourself. Help myself. Yeah. He's just laying back and reading his Bible a little bit and wanting it to end. He doesn't want to keep going. When people find out that uh, you actually welcome dying, they'll do everything they can to keep you alive. <laughs> Even if you're in misery the whole time, you, they love to keep you in misery. But, I kind of resent that. I'd, I'd like, you do? If I want to die, I want to, I'd like to be let alone. <laughs> let me die. And here I am with this project trying to make you, force you into doing something. To well, I, I, my feeling is that uh, if I'm still alive, the Lord wants me to be alive. I think I know what he wants you to do. I think he wants you to make a Christian out of me. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to make a Christian out of you. That, <laughs> okay. that, yeah. All right, that's, that's your... Just, that's, that's your job. Yeah, I suppose that's true. And I'm probably not likely to succeed. February 19th, 2006. Hi, Roger. Here are a few questions about Christianity and Jesus Christ and religion in general that I'd like to ask you about. After the, my second meeting so with Roger, I wrote a letter that posed several questions about Christianity and religion in general. Question one, what evidence or reasoning can you give me that would make me decide to accept the Christian Bible as being a wiser choice than accepting the Quran or the Talmud or the teachings of Buddha? Two, what will be the fate of those millions and millions of very pious Muslims and pious Jews? I would like to know what the Bible says about I was going to send this letter to Roger so he would have something to think about and try to prepare answers for me during the time when I wouldn't be there. And I wasn't sure if I should send it, so I consulted Carmen, who's my hospice volunteer supervisor. I'm Carmen Bilchin. I'm the volunteer coordinator for Hospice at Home. Joe emailed me the letter that he wanted to mail to the patient, sort of preparatory to the sessions. And it seemed a bit confrontational to me. Reading the letter, I would have felt that I was defending my faith rather than discussing it. 
7. My investigation of the Christian Bible shows me a lot of stuff that is confusing, unacceptable to my moral sense, and flat-out erroneous. And then it gives Bible passages. So my advice to Joe was, uh, bring it with you to the sessions, but don't mail it to him, you know. Just bring it to the sessions and bring up a topic gently and see how it went. So he decided not to mail the letter. In the training, we were instructed not to have an agenda. We should not go in there to a patient's home with an agenda. So um, I had my own agenda there, like mad, and Carmen pointed that out to me very kindly in her email response to me uh, that I shouldn't send him that letter. I'm really glad I didn't do that because I'm not going to do anything that would upset him in any way, any way that would shake his belief in his religion right now. That that was kind of what I was trying to do there. You have to kind of rein him in. Joe has to let the patient guide the sessions. Let the patient feel that he's not defending his faith or his belief, but educating Joe to what he believes and why he believes. Hi, Roger. Good to see you. Good to see you. So I wrote you a letter asking you a bunch of questions about the Bible. You did? Mm-hmm. Did I get it? No, I didn't send it. Oh. <laughs> I, I brought it with me, though. Okay. You want me to read it and tell you the answers? I'll read it to you. All right. I brought the letter and selected certain questions that what I figured wouldn't be threatening to him. All right, here's a question. What do you feel is the one most important thing that you could suggest for me to do with my spiritual life? How should I go about it? My guess is that you can't do that. You have to release yourself to God's will, and you probably won't do it. You think you can run your own life. You have to get over that. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. We have too much ego. Yeah. Yeah, we think we can run our own lives. Yeah. I 100% agree with that. I'm going to get my pencil and write that down. <laughs> and I like that response because, as a Buddhist, that's ex- precisely the problem that human beings have. All of our suffering and all... The suffering that we cause other people comes from this clinging to an ego. So I connected with that idea, you know, and the real principles of Christianity and the real principles of Buddhism are not far apart. Okay, so let's go to another question. All right, go ahead. What evidence or reasoning can you give me that would make me decide to accept the Christian Bible as being a wiser choice than accepting the Koran or the Talmud or the teachings of Buddha? I think I had decided not to ask that question. I'm not sure why I asked. Maybe I was just looking for material to talk about. I don't know. Why is your Bible the true Bible and other Bibles not? I think the devil tries his very best to divert people from the right thing, the real thing. i got to go to the bathroom. Okay. Here she That sounds like a good idea. I get pretty heavy duty sometimes. Want some help, Roger, or are you okay? Okay. I think I put a little too much pressure on him there with my own agenda. I don't think I should have talked to him so much about Christianity and religion. 
I think that was a little bit too much. So I'm, I brought a good book I can read. Maybe I'll let him read his book. Won't pursue this topic anymore too much. What am I trying to do anyway? Sounds like I'm trying to shake his faith, doesn't it? I thought I wasn't going to do that. I, I'm coming in here with an agenda all the time. I don't know what my agenda is, really. I don't want him to become a Buddhist. He couldn't possibly be a good Buddhist. <laughs> so, how you been? <laughs> like this. About like that? Yeah. Sort of stretched out on your chair and... Yeah, I don't do anything. I don't even think very well anymore. Yeah? There's <laughs> something I brought. This is by the Dalai Lama. You know the Dalai Lama? I don't got to read anything written by the Dalai Lama. May all beings everywhere, plagued by suffering of body and mind, obtain an ocean of happiness and joy by virtue of my merit. May the blind see forms and the deaf hear sounds. I read him some Dalai Lama, and uh, I thought he would be able to re relate to that, but see, he's too rigid, you know, he, he's not flexible, he's not open to any ideas if they're, if they're not labeled Christian. May the powerless find power, and may people think of benefiting each other. Oh, that's all nice, but so what? What do you mean, so what? <laughs> How can you say, so what? Well... That's just nice wishes for everybody. Yeah. Why is that so what? Oh, it's because it, it's about as insincere as one person can be. Insincere? Yeah. That don't help me any. Doesn't help you any? No. Hmm. I don't need any help. That's my problem, I guess. I don't think I need any help. Don't need any help? I talk to the Lord, but there's nothing that can beat that. Yeah. I pray to the Lord. And I believe, and I know the Lord hears because He hears everything. I'd be interested in knowing what is the Lord. What for you is the Lord? The Lord is God Almighty, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost. The universe is under their control. Control? Yeah, control. Any. So, if a seven-year-old girl in Iraq has her legs blown away from an American mortar shell, the that's God's control? Yeah, that's under God's control. Yeah. He permits a lot of things like that. He permits people like George Bush to be elected president? Yeah, he permits a lot of things. Or is that the devil's work? He permits you to act as dumb as you are. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't strike me as someone who's suffering from uh, loss of spirit. If he says something is. It's silly. <laughs> I really know it sometimes. He's not afraid to express his opinion. He will hold his ground. He definitely will hold his ground. I don't believe everything he says, and so I let him know if I don't. He doesn't. He's not trying to convert me, I don't think. And I'm not going to try to convert him. I think he's not interested in being converted. He's, he's a Buddhist. Any Buddhist is a nut. <laughs> They're all nuts. <laughs> I don't think it's okay to just tell a person they can pray any old which way what's in their heart and mind. I don't pray that way anymore. I have very formal prayers. Well, you can have them. My prayer is not formal. Yeah, but you might say, 
I wish that Joe Hasse would quit coming here on Mondays because he's irritating the hell out of me and I don't want him coming here anymore and I don't like that guy and I wish you'd send him to hell. I don't go through that process. <laughs> I may think it, but I don't say it. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, that's a prayer. Thinking is a prayer. <laughs> Carmen Bilchin, volunteer coordinator for Hospice at Home. I got an email, I believe, from Joe's sister telling me that he was in a serious accident and that he was in the hospital. Okay, we're over in South Bend, Indiana, in uh, Memorial Hospital. I'm speaking with a dry mouth and my two front top teeth are missing from the accident that were knocked out. Joe had had an episode. He was bipolar and apparently his medications hadn't been effective. And he rushed out of his home, got in his car in kind of a probable manic state, and subsequently he got into the accident. I had been cycling through some of my mental illness. And I said, you know, Roger and I die, might die today. So I took a nice, clean, fresh sheet of yellow paper, and I wrote on it, Roger, I love you, Joe. And I stuffed that piece of paper in my pocket, and I got in my truck, and I drove as fast as I could go to get to Roger Nidai's house but I slammed into a parked van that was there. The truck rolled four or five times and I slammed up against the side of a house. He had uh, head injuries, he had ribs and vertebrae that were damaged. The whole thing was madness. I mean, Roger Nidai, as far as I know, is still alive. I'm Carol Williams. I'm Roger Nidai's daughter. I called Carol and I, I told her that he had had a problem with this bipolar state and that the medications were no longer functioning and that it might have caused the accident. I was surprised when Carmen told me that he was bipolar. I, I, there was no indication that I would have seen for that. It didn't seem to bother her at all. She certainly didn't think that it affected Joe's visits with her dad. She didn't seem to have a, a strong reaction or a negative reaction at all when I told her. I feel like they must have known and they must have felt like he was stable enough to do this or, I mean, they're the medical people, not me, and that, that they have screened him or been around him enough to be able to feel confident in sending him out on a caretaking experience like this. The initial interview, he was very upfront and frank about being bipolar. Um, that he was on his medication and that it was under had been under control for quite some time. He seemed to be, be a very caring, compassionate person. Um, he was a Buddhist and had a calmness to him at the time. And we felt that he'd be a great volunteer. So the bipolar didn't bother us at all. And pretty much, if I stay on my medication, I don't have the problem, pretty much. 
That's not 100% true. I would say that the past three to four weeks prior to his accident, Joe had sent me emails that I, I questioned, and I, I thought, this doesn't seem like Joe. It did make me wonder what was going on with Joe's mind. However, Roger hadn't um, voiced any problems with their discussions. Roger's wife hadn't as well. So I thought, well, if it's okay with the patient and the family, then it's all right. I was not here during the time that he was with my dad, but my dad's reports and Joe's reports seemed like they kind of made a connection and that they enjoyed talking. Yeah, I like to talk to him. We argued a lot, but (laughs) I hope he gets well enough so he can come back again. And I am going to think about it a lot before we would have Joe come back again, but I don't think I want to tell my dad and my mom that he was bipolar. It might frighten them. I don't know why. I'm not trying to hide anything from him. I just don't want to cause him any more anxiety than is already there. It's been three months since my accident. I'm recovering pretty well. Today, we're going to go visit Roger. I haven't seen Roger for three months. Well, good morning. I usually go as a hospice volunteer where I give respite for Jerry, Roger's wife. But now they apparently have been assigned a different hospice volunteer since I've been out of service for three months. And I don't know whether or not I'll ever get back in service. So how are you doing? You've had quite an experience. You're looking pretty good, though. Yeah, I'm feeling better every day. That's good. Medication for my mental illness seems to be doing well for me. Now, I want to tell you, I have not said anything to my folks about the bipolar part okay. of your illness at okay. all. I have always felt like that needed to come from you okay. to them. Yeah. So that's okay. up to you. Okay. Hi. Hi, Roger. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> good to see you. Good to see you. No, I don't know whether it's good to see you or not. <laughs> I have a halo on my head because I had vertebrae broken in my backbone. Hi, Jerry. You remember me? <laughs> Not that way, I I'm don't. Joe. <laughs> I have no clue is what I'm going to talk to about Roger with. I Sometimes I try to have a plan, but I just don't have an idea of what I'm going to talk to him about. So you seem pretty cheerful. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing fine. I expected to be gone long before this. Roger seemed to be happy to see me smiled a lot, and I thought he seemed to be doing very well. Well, we keep you in our prayers, and we have been doing that ever since you had your accident. Thank so you. we hope that Thank you. we know the Lord can do lots of good things for us. Yeah. You know, he's gone through a lot of trouble of all kinds. What was he doing, 90 miles an hour when he turned his car over? That's crazy. Well... Did I tell you that I have a mental illness, Roger? A mental illness? Yeah. Do you remember me telling you that? I may not have. I have bipolar mood syndrome. 
I don't know what that is. Okay, what bipolar mood syndrome is. I told Roger and Jerry I had bipolar syndrome because I wanted them to understand that the accident occurred because I have a mental illness. Three months ago, I got in my truck. I said, I'm going to go visit Roger Nidai because I think he's dying today. You thought I was dying? Uh Uh-huh. You get an idea in your head that is completely absurd. And there's nothing that says don't drive 95 miles an hour. It's dangerous. You might kill someone. I I really do think the Lord was watching over him. Or he, he would not have come through that accident like he did. Do I think God is watching out for me? Boy, I I would always have said no. But in the last year, I I don't know what the hell is going on. Can you talk to the Lord? Can you talk to God? Tell him how you feel? I think I do. That should be a comfort to you. I think it is. Good, good. I think that's a comfort. He's a Buddhist, isn't he? There's nothing I can do about it. I can't help him any. Maybe the Lord sent him. But if if he did, I I didn't get any message to him. (laughs) A good friend of mine said, a good Buddhist doesn't fear death. He fears rebirth. But I think I do fear death. I don't fear death in any way. My relationship with God is up to him. Now, I, I don't have anything more to confess or I'm doing my best to be obedient, <laughs> but I don't have any great problems to solve or anything. If the Lord wants me tomorrow or now or in 10 minutes, I'm ready. I'm so glad that you came. Thank you. And we hope you lose your crown pretty soon. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> we just wish him well. Hope he gets completely recovered and that the medication can keep the bipolar problem under control. That's the important thing for him. As his hospice volunteer coordinator, absolutely I would want him volunteering again. He's still a very caring, insightful person. He's still, I think, is capable of giving a lot to a hospice family. And so as long as he gets the bipolar state under control, he's definitely welcome back. Thanks for coming. Enjoy seeing you again. Yeah. All right. You've been listening to Hospice Chronicles, produced by Elizabeth Meister and Dan Collison. Their work has won numerous honors, including the 2005 Third Coast International Audio Festival Richard H. Driehaus Gold Award. If you want to hear more of their work, we have a link to Long Haul Productions on our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Earlier this year, in collaboration with the Dollar Store Show, the Third Coast Festival invited anyone and everyone to submit a short audio story inspired by one of three items purchased at a dollar store. A four-pack of wooden mousetraps, a ceramic mug bearing the sentence, well-behaved women rarely make history, and an old-school bicycle bell, which inspired this entry from Ann Arbor, Michigan, called The Curve of the Earth. So I must be four or five, maybe I'm six. 
and I go riding on my bike, and my bike has the bell. And I always push down on it, and it makes its noise. It's bling, 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 bling. The town is really tiny. The roads are all dirt. What sidewalks they are are wooden. The mountains are sort of way out, like kind of like teeth on the horizon. Even as a child, you can really see the curve of the earth because there's nothing in your way, and the light's so clear. And I go everywhere. My parents let me go everywhere because nobody worries about anything. And I'm standing on my bike, and I'm pumping hard, and I'm looking down, and I'm wearing my little cowboy hat, which is made out of some kind of cheap cardboard or something with fake velvet on it. And it's tied under my chin because otherwise it'll get blown away because hats always blow away out there. It's pulling back as I'm pushing forward and the wind is blowing. And I get to the main intersection of town um, and I go, I just go ripping right through there. I don't look, I don't look right or I don't look left because I just know the cars are going to stop for me because I'm the kid, I'm king of the mountain. I'm the kid in town. Everybody's going to stop for me, but, but one of the Rhymer boys doesn't stop. And I go flying and I feel myself scraping across the dirt. Gordy Reimer comes over. Gordy was always a big guy, still a big guy. He reaches down and he picks me up, puts me in the front seat of his pickup truck, and he drives me home. He carries me into my mother. And there I am. I sort of, I'm feeling like I want to be limp because I've just been hit by a car, but there's absolutely nothing wrong with me. No blood, hardly any scratches. Nothing's wrong with me. That afternoon, I drive back to school, and I haven't changed a thing. I, my little bell just keeps ringing, and the mountains are off there to the west, sort of looking like teeth, snow-covered teeth, and the wind's blowing. And I just keep going and going and going. And that's probably, you know, the warmest memory I have of that place was being taken care of by Gordy Reimer after he hit me, <laughs> after he ran over me. He didn't run over me. He hit me and I flew. On my little red bike with my little bell. That was The Curve of the Earth, produced by Stephanie Rowden with Keith Taylor. One of the Third Coast Festival dollar stories. Resound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. The program is hosted by Gwen Maxi, produced by Delaney Hall, and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. The Third Coast Festival is also supported by Stephen Gross of Real Life Weddings. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.